0: Hi everybody and welcome back to the Dark Histories Podcast, I'm your host Rob. I want to start as always by thanking everybody for the overwhelming reaction to the previous episodes, I really do appreciate it. So today's episode we will look at the dark history of London, more so the dark stories behind some of the landmarks, areas and events of this ancient city. This episode will be spread over two, maybe three parts, as nobody wants to listen to me waffle for three hours. So without further ado, sit back, relax, for more Dark History. London is the capital and largest city in England and the UK. Founded after the Roman invasion of the British Isles in 43 CE, the first major settlement only lasted until 61 CE, when the Celtic Queen Boudicca burnt it to the ground. But the Romans wouldn't be deterred, building Londinium in the year 100. By the 2nd century, Roman London had a population of 60,000 people. Like we all know, the collapse of the Roman Empire came in the early 5th century. ...leaving the walled city abandoned... ...with the last Roman citizens leaving around the year 450... ...from the St. Martins in the field area. By 500, the Anglo-Saxons established Londonwick... ...slightly to the west of the old Roman settlement... ...then came the Vikings' repeated assaults... ...causing the decline in the city's fortune. By the 14th of October 1066... ...William... Duke of Normandy, had defeated Harold Godwinson at the Battle of Hastings and was moving through England England, doing what he did best, conquering, and by Christmas day he was the King of England. In 1078 the construction began of the White Tower and here is where we start our first story, at the Tower of London. The Tower of London is a historic castle on the north bank of the River Thames in central London. It lies within the London borough of Tower Hamlets. As a whole, the Tower is a complex of several buildings within two concentric rings of defensive walls and a mole. The Tower has served variously as an armory, a treasury, a menagerie, a home of the Royal Mint, a public records office. ...and the home of the Crown Jewels of England, and also a prison. Some notable names were held in the Tower, from Anne Boleyn, King Henry VIII's unfortunate second wife... ...right up to the Quay Twins, who were notorious gangsters in London in the 1960s. With a prison this old, it has seen its first share of bloodshed. 22 executions occurred in the Tower of London... ...which is said to be haunted by the deaths that took place there. The last execution on Tower Hill was of a treasonous man and took place in 1747. (music) The previously mentioned Queen Anne Boleyn story is quite sad as most are in the Tower... She was found guilty of high treason by a jury of her peers in the King's Hall at the Tower on, 15, on the 15th of May 1536. Here is where the four-day countdown to her execution began. Queen Anne had been charged with having sexual relations with five courtiers, including her brother. We know from reports... Of those around Anne during her final few days. That was she experiencing periods of fluctuating moods. Sometimes tending towards hysteria. And that as Anne Boleyn's execution approached, She slept only a little. So one might imagine. That when Anne finally emerged to make her last walk. From the Queen's apartments to the scaffold. She would have looked frail and exhausted. Haunted and he, at the horror. What lay ahead. Yet surprisingly, what we know from contemporary sources does not suggest that this was the case. I've always been strangely fascinated by the words of the Portuguese witness, who afterwards wrote an account of the events on that May morning saying that never had the Queen looked so beautiful. Another account from de Charles stated that the Queen went to her execution with an untroubled contents. On the morning of the 19th of May, Anne was executed within the Tower Princes, not upon the site of an execution memorial, but rather, according to historian Eric Ives, on a scaffold erected on the north side of the White Tower, in front of what is now the Waterloo Barracks. She wore a red petticoat under a loose dark grey gown of damask, trimmed in fur. And a mantle of ermine, accompanied by two female attendants, Anne made her final walk from the Queen's house to the scaffold. The ermine mantle was removed and Anne lifted off her headdress, tucking her hair under a coif. After a brief farewell to her weeping ladies and a request for prayer, she knelt down and one of her ladies tied a blindfold around her eyes. She knelt upright in the French style of beheadings. Her final prayers consisted of her repeating continuously, "Jesus, receive my soul. O Lord God, have pity on my soul." The execution consisted of a single stroke severing her head from her body. She was then buried in an unmarked grave in the chapel of Saint Peter at Vincula. Her skeleton was identified during renovations of the chapel in 1876, in the reign of Queen Victoria, and Anne's grave is now identified on the marble floor. As Anne Boleyn's story was undoubtedly tragic, it doesn't compare to the one of the princes in the tower. In 1933 the skeletons of two young boys, one aged 10 and the other aged around 13, was disinterred from Westminster Abbey. These bones had been reburied in an urn in 1674 and placed in the Henry VII Chapel in the Abbey. The skeletons aroused much interest and debate as they were believed by many historians to be the bones of the two princes who were reputedly murdered in the Tower of London in the 15th century. Last seen alive in the autumn of 1483, two young English princes, Edward V and his younger brother Richard, Duke of York, have generally been presumed to have been the skeletons and murdered in the Tower, but were they? The story of the two princes becomes a massive murder mystery. As with everything in history, we can't actually know with 100% certainty what happened. So this tale becomes an intense game of Cluedo. Who did it? With what weapon? In what room? For hundreds of years, it's been popularised that the princes in the tower were murdered on the orders of their uncle, Richard, Duke of Gloucester. On the death of Edward IV, King of England in April 1483, his brother Richard became Lord Protector of the realm. The king was survived by his two sons and heirs. Uncle Richard had the juveniles housed in the Tower of London, and it soon became apparent that Richard wanted the throne for himself. Richard had Edward dethroned and illegitimized, and had himself crowned king. ...on the 26th of June 1483. The princes, meanwhile, were still in the Tower... ...and before long, rumours began to spread throughout England... ...and then Europe, that the youths were dead. The traditional version of the events... dramatised in Shakespeare's 1593 play, Richard III... ...is that the young knight, Sir James Tyrell... ...on Richard's orders, went into the prince's apartment in the Tower... ...with two men and murdered them. According to a late confession by Tyrell... ...the men smothered the adolescents... ...with pillows before burying them... ...at the foot of some stairs. But then Richard ordered them to be reburied elsewhere... ...at the spot unspecified by Tyrell. Now Richard was undoubtedly ruthless. He had several opponents executed... ...upon his ascension to the throne... And was rumoured to have been involved in the death of Henry VI and his own brother George who was executed by being drowned in a butt of wine. But would he have resorted to murdering his two young nephews? Another theory that has been floated by historians is that Henry Stafford killed the boys. Henry Stafford, the 2nd Duke of Buckingham, who supported Richard Duke of Gloucester in his successful coup in April of 1483. But by November 1483, Henry Stafford was executed for the failed Buckingham Rebellion. Some evidence suggests that Buckingham killed the princes in what he thought was an act favourable to Richard, but that this was the cause of their having a falling out. If Buckingham did in fact carry out the dreadful deed, it is thought that highly unlikely by historians that he could have done it without Richard's knowledge. There are a couple more theories where certain other people, namely Henry VII or Lady Margaret Beaumont, killed the princes, but they don't hold much historical weight. Also, there is a theory that the boy survived, but if he were the rightful king of England, When you were old enough, you would at least try to take back your throne, wouldn't you? So I think personally, all fingers point to the main protagonist, and that is Richard III. So with our next part of the episode, we'll take a trip out of the centre of London, to Monk's Orchid Road, Beckenham, in in the London Borough of Bromley and to the Bethlehem Royal Hospital, or more commonly known, Bedlam Psychiatric Hospital. The term Bedlam, defined as chaos and confusion, was coined as a descriptor for the Bethlehem Asylum during its height and its maleficence in the 18th century. Founded in 1247 as the Priory of the New Order of Our Lady of Bethlehem, it was the first hospital of its kind in Great Britain. Never before had there been a place for the mentally infirmed, disabled and criminal-minded to be adequately locked away from society. While patients came to Bedlam suffering from complaints such as chronic mania or acute melancholy, people were just likely to be admitted for crimes such as infanticide, homicide and evil ruffianism. Being admitted to Bedlam, as it was called, didn't necessarily mean a person was well on their way to being rehabilitated, since treatment implied little more than isolation or experiment. If the patients managed to survive the asylum at all, they and their families were typically worse for work by the end of their stay. Patients were subjected to treatment such as rotation theory wherein they were seated in a chair suspended from the ceiling and spun as much as 100 rotations per minute beyond social mores of the time a lack of funding can be explained why bedlam became bethlem became bedlam the asylum was a poorly funded government institute heavily reliant upon the financial support of its patients and families and private donors of course the vast majority of those found themselves at Bedlam had to come had come from wealth, nor even a middle class. Patients were often poor, uneducated, and had been victimized not only by whatever mental infirmities they possessed but a, so- a society that was repelled by them. In fact, by the eighteenth century, Bedlam had become less a hospital and more a circus sideshow. And for pretty straightforward reasons, freaks made money. People came from all over to see the patients at Bethlehem Royal Hospital. Some even arranging holidays around it. Of course, none of them were actually freaks. But since Bethlehem was so fiscally related upon the money guests would pay to see them, patients were certainly driven... To behave as though they were mad. By the mid-1800s, a man named William Hood became a physician-in-residence at Bedlam and wanted to completely turn the institution around. He hoped to create actual rehabilitation programs which would serve the hospital's patients rather than the administrators'. The Bedlamites, as they were nicknamed, had been subjected to horrific treatments, both experimental and some were just downright cruel, and were often desired only for the study of their corpses. Others were simply thrown into a mass grave on Liverpool Street, which was only discovered a few years ago. During World War II, Bethlehem Royal Hospital was moved to a more rural location. ...which was meant to improve the quality of life of the patients. The move also helped rid the institution of its horrendous legacy. Though many thanks to the Museum of Minds archive... ...we are able to get a glimpse of the haunting faces of the Bedlamites. Many of them were photographed upon their administration... ...with notes or two about their diagnosis. One wonders looking at these photos today how many of these patients survived bedlam and if they did if any of them were ever truly well again yeah so that was part one i could talk for hours on the tower of london there has been so much history in that place it's unreal I didn't even touch on the torture or other executions that had happened there. I just thought I'd pick some of the more famous stories out. The Bedlam Hospital is also fascinating. It's like a window to medicine in a bygone era. It's sad how people who were different or challenged were treated as some sort of circus act. As always, thank you for listening to this episode. Let me know if you would like a part two straight after or a little break with something a little different. Like I said in the previous episode, I really dislike begging for reviews and subscriptions, but here it goes. If you enjoyed this episode, please review the podcast, follow and share it with your friends and family if you think they would enjoy it too. Links to YouTube and TikTok will be in the description Thank God that's over with till the next episode. And with that, I hope to see you again for the next episode and more Dark History.